Please open up your Bibles to the Old Testament, and we begin to read at Ezekiel 18, the first four verses, and also from verse 20, and verse 4 and 20 will be at the focus of our Heidelberg Catechism sermon this afternoon from Lord's Day 5. And so God's infallible word at Ezekiel 18, reading at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. In verse 20, the Lord, or sorry, the soul who sins shall die. The Son shall not bear the guilt of the Father, nor the Father bear the guilt of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And then we turn ahead a little ways in the Old Testament to the book of Nahum, one of the minor prophet, proverb, prophets coming after Obadiah and Micah, then comes Nahum. Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And there we focus on verse 6 as well. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. For he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. And then finally to the New Testament, to the book of Romans chapter 8. The words of the Apostle Paul concerning the glory and the all-sufficiency sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verse 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak, through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. 
he condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then let's turn to Lord's Day 5 in the Heidelberg Catechism. You can find that on page 521, the back of your books of praise, continuing in the sequence of the Catechism where Reverend Vandevelde finished off last time, turning now to our deliverance in Lord's Day 5. Question and answer 12. Since according to God's righteous judgment we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and again be received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another. Can we, make, can we by ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? one who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. Part of our historic Christian and our Reformed faith by which we continue to live. are people of the Lord who are called to be saints. I believe one of the ma major reasons why people believe there is no God is because they want to push out of their mind once and for all the idea of divine judgment and of divine punishment. You see, if there is no God, there is no judge, and if there is no judge, there is no final punishment in the end either to hold people accountable for their deeds. We know that also was the case in the ancient world when many, many people, of course, upon the face of the earth as well at that time refused to believe that there was a great flood that destroyed all the world. And they refused to believe that because they wanted to deny forever the fact that a God would one day judge them as well as he once destroyed the world by the flood. And first, Second Peter chapter 3 verse 5 tells us all these things. And so here we have this scenario, brothers and sisters, who likes to be judged for their wrongdoing? This is something we don't like either all that much. Our first inclination is, of course, to hide our sin or to minimize our sin and in the process, of course, exonerate ourselves. But the maker of the heavens and the earth congregation is a righteous judge. He is a just judge and he certainly is there and he will send his son one day to judge the living and the dead. That is part of our Christian faith, for sure. 
And God's judgments even now are being manifested upon the earth, we read in Romans 1 verse 18. And so here is our theme this afternoon, but as a righteous and a just God, he also has provided our deliverance. God always comes through as a God of grace to his people. That's our theme, and we find these things also in Lord's Day 5, that first Lord's Day that begins that second section of the Heidelberg Catechism, introducing to us the grace of God and the means by which we are saved entirely from all of our sins, the means of our deliverance. Oh, God is just to be sure, but he is also merciful and gracious. Even Nahum said that God is slow to anger, slow to anger, full of mercy and compassionate as the psalmist speaks as well. And so, congregation, we focus first upon our predicament, secondly upon some possible solutions to get us out of our predicament, and thirdly, the only solution. A righteous and a just God has provided for our deliverance. First of all, what is our predicament? Well, congregation, it's far worse than we ever could have imagined. It's far worse than being caught between a rock and a hard place. It is the fact that we are liable to divine fury of the Most High God, divine indignation of God Most High. And we've got nothing to say, of course. All we can say is, oh God, you are just, and I'm a sinful man, I'm a sinful woman. Like David said in Psalm 51 at, 51 at verse 4, he says, And you are found just when you speak, and you are righteous when you judge. And that ought to simply shut our mouths right up, right? Because we have no leg to stand on, we have no mouth with which to speak to exonerate ourselves. We don't. This is our predicament. Question 12 identifies it by these words. Since according to God's righteous judgment we deserve, hey, notice that word, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and again be received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must, we must, Make full of a payment, either by ourselves or through another. Our predicament is bad. It's very bad. But there's hope. There's hope. Notice that word in the question 12, the operative word. It's the word escape. A nice word. How can we escape this punishment? Oh yes, there is a way, all right, but it's through the process of divine judgment and punishment being executed at the same time. The catechism here answers with regard to question 12 that God demands his justice be satisfied. It means it's only right and proper and fair 
for that divine judgment to be meted out against our sins. And so I asked the question, isn't that the case with each one of us too? Don't we also want justice when somebody wrongs us and hurts us? Don't we expect something in return, some kind of restitution? If someone does us wrong, we want satisfaction too, don't we? We say that's just plain justice, that's just plain right, that's the way it has to be. Justice. And that's why we have lawyers, that's why we have courts of law, that's why we have a police force to catch the criminal, to make him pay somehow for his crimes, to make restitution to society, or perhaps to get locked up somehow he has to pay for his crime. Justice, you see, is one of those very important essentials of our society by which we live in a harmonious and civil kind of a way. And God cannot operate without that either. God is the very source of all justice. It's sort of like this, kids. If you do something wrong, you're in trouble, right? You're in trouble. You take a rock and you throw it through your neighbor's window on purpose, and guess what? You're going to get some kind of discipline, some kind of punishment. You're going to get it, right? Maybe from your mom and dad, maybe from your neighbor, but you're going to get it. And so with a thief, if he steals a car, that's unacceptable, isn't it? That has got to be properly dealt with. Or a murderer who kills somebody, he deserves the death penalty. At least such was the common justice concerning that some years ago. Now it's life imprisonment, but you get the point. Well, so it is with our God in heaven. He also demands a just and a fair, a righteous punishment. He's only doing right when he punishes people for their sin. And he never, punches, he never punishes anyone worse than what they deserve. Never. Because he's fair. He's just. He's righteous. Catechism answers in question 12. God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another. We somehow must make some kind of payment back to God for our sins. And here we note two things as we look at point one. Two things. First, the payment that God demands is nothing short of perfect obedience to him. And that's a very logical thing because God made us perfect in his own image. He made us to obey him perfectly and that would be completely satisfying to God. They were talking about satisfaction during the course of this sermon. That would be satisfying to God. And indeed we hear a hint of that in Romans 8 verse 4 where Paul writes that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, 
righteous requirement simply means perfect obedience to the law might be fulfilled in us. Yes, somehow that's got to happen. That's what needs to happen. A full payment back to God. Now the second thing to note is if we can't make that payment of perfect obedience then a full punishment for our sins is automatically in order. That's logic. That's true. That's right. And that's what Question 12 simply says, since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? The question never questions the reality and the logic of punishment. It's there. We can't get around it. But the point is, who can escape this punishment, who can maybe absorb that punishment or deflect that punishment in some way, shape, or form to survive that punishment and live to see another day? Well, of course, that's not going to happen, is it? Not by our own selves. And that is what we read from the prophet Nahum, chapter 1, verse 6. The prophet says, who can stand before his indignation? That word means his righteous anger, his righteous wrath. Who can stand before that? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? There's no exaggeration here at all. And his fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. These last couple of words sound kind of strange here, but they, they communicate this kind of thing that not even the earth can endure the fierceness and the fury of his indignation. For notice what verse 5 says. He writes, the mountains quake before him. The hills, they melt. The earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. So who can stand before this infinite fury, this divine judgment of God, this indignation of his wrath? If the earth can't survive it, how could we? Nobody can. Not of our making. For God's wrath is all-consuming. It's unending. It is eternal. And so, to sum up point one, we're left with two things. Either our perfect obedience to God or eternal punishment by God to be satisfied. That congregation is our predicament. And so, please don't think you simply need Jesus to get you out of a few troubles. Please don't think that Jesus is here to simply make us feel good about ourselves. Please don't think that Jesus is simply here to help us become better people by giving us some nice moral lessons to teach us thereby. Please don't think Jesus is simply here that we follow his good example. 
If those three things were the case, we would not have a predicament at all to deal with. We'd be really in pretty good shape if that was our predicament. But congregation, we're talking divine fury. We're talking divine everlasting punishment. We're talking about H-E-L-L. We're talking of hell. But maybe, just maybe, the catechism is kind of tweaking it that way. There are some possible solutions to get us out of our predicament. Let's kind of check that out. You see, man is of this character. He's always seeking to find an escape from God somehow that does not include him putting his trust in Jesus Christ but of his own scheming and, uh, and, uh, and ways. And that brings us to question 13 regarding some possible solutions. Question 13, can we of ourselves make this payment? Is that one possible solution? No, it's not. Catechism says, certainly not. On the contrary, we increase our debts every day, every day. Our debt, what is our debt? Well, a debt is something you owe to another person. You buy something from him and he charges you $10. If you don't pay that, that's your debt. You've got to pay it back, you see. Our debt to God is not money, but it is perfect obedience and we simply cannot make that good by our best intentions, by all our best efforts of trying to keep His holy law. You see, by means of our good intentions, we still keep falling flat on our face, and all our sins still keep piling up one after the other throughout the course of every day, never mind the course of your whole life. They pile up. The debt never gets paid by ourselves. And that is what Romans 3 or 8 verse 3 is teaching us. Look at that verse. Paul writes, for what the law could not do. He's talking about the Ten Commandments and he's saying something about them that they simply can't do. For the law could not do what the law could not do and that it was weak. Why? On account of or through the flesh. Now, there was never anything wrong with God's law. The problem is that's not where the, where the thing is wrong. The, the thing, the problem, or the, the area where something is wrong is with you and me. Paul says the law was weak through the flesh because of what the flesh was really like. Our flesh is so overloaded and absolutely filled up with corruption, with wickedness, with evil, with every manner of sin that you can possibly imagine. Our corruption is total. We do confess total depravity. The law, you see, cannot serve as an instrument to deliver us out of our predicament, predicament by enabling us to do to the best of our ability what it calls us to do or commands us to do. It can't because of our flesh, our sinful nature. And yet people think, of course, I'm a pretty good guy. I keep the law. I don't speed too much on the highway. 
I've never hurt my neighbor. I pay my taxes. I'm nice to people. Law-abiding. By any, any reasonable human standard of goodness, I'm good. I'm good to go, as a fact. And so, if God is going to deal with me, I think he'll go easy on me because I've been a pretty decent guy throughout my life. I've basically got a clean sheet. You won't find much wrong with me. But what are such people doing? As they think that way, they are implying that if there is a human standard of righteousness, if there is a human standard of moral goodness or excellence, if there is this thing called the law, and we can't get away from the fact that that law is there because we all have a conscience, they are still thinking if they do their best to keep this law, they'll be okay. They might say, we'll cross our fingers, but we should be good when it comes to judgment time, if there is such a thing. But Paul throws out this whole nonsense when he says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Our sinful flesh could not be worse than what it is. It could not be more contrary to God's righteousness than what it is. And so, congregation, there's no solution here either, is there? There's no solution at all. We keep sinning every day. The Catechism says our debt increases every day. I can't keep it perfectly every day. Well, maybe there's another solution. Let's keep looking here. Let's go to the first part of question 14. Maybe there's, no, there's not, but let's check it out. Can any mere creature pay for us? Is there a maybe here? No. In the first place, God will not punish an other creature for the sin which man has committed. There's no solution here either, congregation. You see how fair and just God is? God is never going to punish an other kind of creature, whatever that might be on the earth. He's never going to punish another creature for your sin. God will never punish an angel, for example, because of your sin. No angels are ever responsible for your sins. So God cannot justly punish angels, no other creature. Well, you think, well, maybe animals. Well, animals are not responsible for your sin either. They're not human. God would not punish them for human sin. You might say, well, look at the Old Testament, how God commanded the sacrifice of bulls and goats and sheep for the sin of God's people. Yes, but that was only because those, those sacrificial animals were pointing to the great sacrifice that was to come. The coming one was coming and he would be the sacrifice for their sins. And indeed, we know from Hebrews 10:4 that with the blood of bulls and goats, there can never be any remission of sins. And so, God will not punish another creature 
for the sin which man has committed. See how logically correct God is in his own thinking. And do we ever have any logic or right-minded thinking in our own heads because it's because we bear this image of God ourselves. God is logical, God is correct, God is fair, God is sensible, He is just, He is righteous and holy and good, isn't He? Well, let's maybe look one place further. Where further in the Bible might we hear some teaching on this issue of perhaps another creature paying for man's sin? We go to Ezekiel chapter 18, and looking at verse 4, the prophet says, On behalf of God, behold, okay, take note, all souls, say, the soul of every man is mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Is that logical? Does that make sense? Is that right and fair? I think you're all saying, yep, yep, that's true. <laughs> Scriptures are always true. This sounds like good justice. The soul that sins shall die. That's the right kind of accountability, right, we need to see in life. If you sin, your dad's not going to go to jail for you if, he, if you commit a crime. If your father commits a crime worthy of, of uh, going, being thrown in jail, he's going to go into the jail, not you, his son, or his daughter. There again is that logic of God, where God says, every soul, every soul that ever has been in existence, it's mine. I dictate how that soul finally is to operate and function throughout the normal course of life in terms of justice and fairness and equity and accountability to people. We sum up here in verse 20, the soul that sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. You see, the wickedness of a wicked man will stick to him so that it cannot be removed off of him of his own accord or by trying to punish someone else for his wickedness. Not any other creature could pay for the wickedness of the wicked man to somehow deliver him and keep him from dying for his sin. And that's what the Catechism was also getting at here when it speaks about any mere creature could he take away your guilt and be punished for you to deliver you out of your predicament? The Catechism asks at the end of question 14, furthermore, it answers, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. You see, who can sustain and survive the eternal wrath of God and save you and other people in the process. Again, we note Nahum 1 verse 6, who can stand before his indignation, who can endure the fierceness of his anger, his fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. 
Here there is no solution either, you see. No mere creature could suffer the weight of God's wrath against you. No solution here. But there is a solution, congregation. There is a solution. Because our theme says, remember, a righteous and a just God has provided our deliverance. Indeed, there is an escape from the righteous judgment and indignation of God, which is to come. God has provided a deliverer to save us from his wrath. God will save us from himself, from his wrath. There is a mediator and there is a deliverer. And this is what he looks like. Let's go to question 15. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? And I can't emphasize enough that word must. Absolutely, we must seek. One who is true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. Here we have a congregation, a mediator who must be truly human, first off, and secondly, truly righteous. Why must he be righteous? Well, logically, he must be because he cannot pay for another man's sin if he himself is sinless. Never mind trying to save other people. He can't even save his own self. He's condemned. So we need someone indeed who is truly righteous and truly human at the same time. Remember why human? Because God will not punish another kind of creature for the sin of human beings. He won't punish an angel or an animal, but a human being. Again, that logically makes sense. God will not punish a non-human creature for human sin. And we know, of course, there is only one human being who is righteous and human altogether. And his name is Jesus Christ. And Paul says we must be in that word in is a very important word. We must be in, united to, completely and truly in Jesus Christ, like a branch united to its vine. Romans 8.1, Paul says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice there the name. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ's personal name is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth to be exact. Remember we saw that man this morning. How we lived. How we talked. How we walked. How we ate. How we slept. How we interacted. He even wept at Lazarus' tomb. He preached. 
He taught. He did miracles. The point is, he was truly human. Truly human. But of course, we have to say more. Again, let's see what Paul here says in this regard. Verse 3. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak, through the flesh, what the law can't do, God himself does. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. God sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh. God did not send his son in sinful flesh, Paul says, but in the likeness. That word likeness is a very important word here. That is to say, Jesus came, born of the virgin, came into this world to live in the absolutely closest relation he could possibly do with our sinful humanity and yet not be tainted or infected with it. But he came in the closest possible means and relationship with humanity that people would say he's just like us. He, in fact, is truly human. But when we speak about that true humanness, we cannot say that that also includes our sinfulness. Therefore, in the likeness, standing shoulder to shoulder with sinners and yet not be infected with their sin. But the point here is Jesus was truly human. God sent him in the likeness of human flesh. And yet here too his absolute purity is guaranteed by that word likeness. And we see in various places in scripture that Jesus Christ was without sin like Paul or Peter, 1 Peter 2 verse 22 that Jesus Christ was one who committed no sin nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so here is the solution in part. What further must we say besides the fact that he's truly human, he's truly righteous? The catechism says, with regard to what kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek, also one who is yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. You see how important Jesus' mighty works and miracles really were to demonstrate he was far more powerful than any creature. His divine nature shone through his mighty works as he spoke, as he taught, as he healed, as he raised the dead. Jesus Christ, of course, is identified here in several ways, but it all shows he is much more powerful than all creatures. First, we look at Romans 8.1, where Jesus Christ is, de is defined as the Christ. As if to say, I mean, to say implicitly, the Messiah of God, the anointed of God, the Christ of God, the Son of God. He truly is God of the same substance and divinity as God the Father. And then we have the truth absolutely declared at the bottom of verse 3. 
whom God did by sending his son, his son, there's that word, his son, in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. And so here we have the only solution. Christ being the son of God, yet in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus being the son of God, and yet born of the Virgin Mary, of the seed of David, our humanity. And what's the, what's the, the upshot of all of this? Well, it answers the question, what kind of a mediator and deliverer must we seek? Not just anybody, not just anything, but one who is true and righteous man, and yet more powerful and all creatures, that is one who is at the same time true God. And congregation, that satisfies the, the answer of question 14, that he alone can bear the burden of the eternal anger against sin and deliver others from it. There's the logic of believing in Jesus Christ. He can deliver us. If Jesus had been just a mere creature like any one of us, then forget it in terms of finding any help from him. He could not stand the weight and the severity of the divine judgment of God. He could never have delivered us. Never. Had he not been more powerful than all creatures and at the same time, true God and true man. If he was but a mere creature, he was not God at all, was he? But the catechism, what the catechism says is so right on. It's dead right. As it is grounded in these holy scriptures. Jesus Christ, more powerful than all creatures. Here's the exact kind of mediator and deliverer that I need and that you all need. What all your grandparents need, they're sinners too. What all you little kids need, you're sinners too. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ at the earliest possible time, so to speak, because salvation is meant for you as well. You were baptized in that hope. Congregation, what we so desperately need, we mentioned being poor and needy this morning, what we are so impoverished in our sin, what we are so needy of, God supplies. He is the great supplier of all of our needs. We must seek him, and having sought him, we must continue to seek him every day in our prayers with regard to all our needs, with regard to all our sins. I guess I could say maybe you can quit praying the time you quit sinning, or you can quit praying the time you quit being a poor and a needy person. Of course, you know, this doesn't make sense if I talk that way. 
But the point is, we must seek him because of our great need and spiritual poverty. And here he is, congregation, in living flesh, our God, our Savior, a true man and true God. And thus Paul can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not live according to the flesh, according to the sinful nature, as if to say, that's okay, I'll be fine living and being a slave to my lust, whatever that lust is. No, there's no condemnation who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk. And that do not walking, of course, aren't good works that save us. Make sure you keep that straight who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, eh, according to the Spirit of Jesus Christ, who himself indwells us, when we, by faith in him, he indeed indwells us. There's that mystery of the indwelling of the Spirit as we place faith in Jesus Christ. In us, then, there is no condemnation. Amen.